Chapter Four of Kilmeny of the Orchard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Missy, Guangzhou, China. Kilmeny of the Orchard by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Four A Tea Table Conversation. The Williamson place, where Eric boarded, was on the crest of the succeeding hill. He liked it as well as Larry West had prophesied that he would. The Williamsons, as well as the rest of the Lindsay people, took it for granted that he was a poor college student working his way through, as Larry West had been doing. Eric did not disturb this belief, although he said nothing to contribute to it. The Williamsons were at tea in the kitchen when Eric went in. Mrs. Williamson was the saint in spectacles and calico which Larry West had termed her. Eric liked her greatly. She was a slight, gray-haired woman, with a thin, sweet, high-bred face, deeply lined with the records of outlived pain. She talked little as a rule, but, in the pungent country phrase, she never spoke but she said something. The one thing that constantly puzzled Eric was how such a woman ever came to marry Robert Williamson. She smiled in a motherly fashion at Eric as he hung his hat on the whitewashed wall and took his place at the table. Outside of the window behind him was a birch grove, which in the westering sun was a tremulous splendor, with a sea of undergrowth wavered into golden billows by every passing wind. Old Robert Williamson sat opposite him, on a bench. He was a small, lean old man, half lost in loose clothes that seemed far too large for him. When he spoke, his voice was as thin and squeaky as he appeared to be himself. The other end of the bench was occupied by Timothy, sleek and complacent, with a snowy breast and white paws. After old Robert had taken a mouthful of anything, he gave a piece to Timothy, who ate it daintily and purred resonant gratitude. "'You see we're busy waiting for you, master,' said old Robert. "'You're late this evening. Keep any of the youngsters in.' That's a foolish way of punishing them, as hard on yourself as on them. One teacher we had four years ago used to lock them in and go home. Then he'd go back in an hour and let them out. If they were there, they weren't always. Tom Ferguson kicked the panels out of the old door once and got out that way. We put a new door of double plank in that they couldn't kick out. I stayed in the schoolroom to do some work, said Eric briefly. Well, you've missed Alexander Tracy. He was here to find out if you could play checkers, and when I told him you could, he left word for you to go up and have a game some evening soon. Don't beat him too often, even if you can. You'll need to stand in with him, I tell you, master, for he's got a son that may brew trouble for you when he starts in to go to school. Seth Tracy's a young imp, and he'd far sooner be in mischief than eat. He tries to run on every new teacher, and he's run too clean out of his school. But he met his match in Mr. West. "'William Tracy's boys now. You won't have a scrap of bother with them. They're always good, because their mother tells them every Sunday that they'll go straight to hell if they don't behave in school. It's effective. Take some preserve, master. You know we don't help things here the way Mrs. Adam Scott does when she has boarders. I suppose you don't want any of this, nor you, nor you. Mother Alex says old George Wright is having the time of his life. His wife has gone to Charlottetown to visit her sister, and he is his own boss for the first time since he was married forty years ago. He's on a regular orgy, Alex says. 
He smokes in the parlour and sits up till eleven o'clock reading dime novels. Perhaps I met Mr. Tracy, said Eric. Is he a tall man, with grey hair and a dark stern face? No, he's a round jolly fellow, is Alec, and he stopped growing pretty much before he'd ever begun. I reckon the man you mean is Thomas Gordon. I seen him driving down the road, too. He won't be troubling you with invitations up. Small fear of it. The Gordons ain't sociable, to say the least of it. No, sir. Mother, pass the biscuits to the master. Who was the young fellow he had with him? asked Eric, curiously. Neil. Neil Gordon. That is a scotchy name for such a face and eyes. I should rather have expected Giuseppe or Angelo. The boy looks like an Italian. Well, now you know, master, I reckon it's likely he does, seeing that that's exactly what he is. You've hit the nail square on the head. Italian, yes, sir. Rather too much so, I'm thinking, for decent folk's taste. How has it happened that an Italian boy with a Scotch name is living in a place like Lindsay? Well, master, it was this way. About twenty-two years ago—was it twenty-two, mother, or twenty-four? Yes, it was twenty-two. "'Twas the same year our Jim was born, and he'd have been twenty-two if he'd lived. Poor little fellow. "'Well, master, twenty-two years ago a couple of Italian pack peddlers came along and called at the Gordon place. The country was swarming with the men. I used to set the dog on one every day, on an average. "'Well, these peddlers were man and wife, and the woman took sick up there at the Gordon place, and Janet Gordon took her in and nursed her. A baby was born the next day, and the woman died. Then the first thing anybody knew, the father skipped clean out, pack and all, and was never seen or heard tell of afterwards. The Gordons were left with the fine youngster to their hand. Folks advised them to send him to the orphan asylum, and twould have been the wisest plan, but the Gordons were never fond of taking advice. Old James Gordon was living then, Thomas and Janet's father, and he said he would never turn a child out of his door. He was a masterful old man and liked to be boss. Folks used to say he had a grudge against the sun cause it rose and set without his say-so. Anyhow, they kept the baby. They called him Neil and had him baptized same as any Christian child. He's always lived there. They did well enough by him. He was sent to school and taken to church and treated like one of themselves. Some folks think they made too much of him. It doesn't always do with that kind, for what's bred and bone is mighty apt to come out in flesh, if taint kept down pretty well. Neil's smart and a great worker, they tell me. But folks hereabouts don't like him. They say he ain't to be trusted further'n you can see him, if as far. It's certain he's awful hot-tempered, and one time when he was going to school he near about killed a boy he took a spite to, choked him till he was black in the face and Neil had to be dragged off. Well now, father, you know they teased him terrible, protested Mrs. Williamson. The poor boy had a real hard time when he went to school, master. The other children were always casting things up to him and calling him names. Oh, I dare say they tormented him a lot, admitted her husband. He's a great hand at the fiddle and likes company. He goes to the harbor a good deal. But they say he takes sulky spells when he hasn't a word to throw to a dog. Twouldn't be any wonder living with the Gordons. They're all as queer as Dick's hat-band. Father, you shouldn't talk so about your neighbors, said his wife rebukingly. Well, now, mother, you know they are, if you'd only speak up honest. But you're like old Aunt Nancy Scott. You never say anything uncharitable except in the way of business. You know the Gordons ain't like other people, and never were and never will be. They're about the only queer folks we have in Lindsay, Master, except old Peter Cook, who keeps twenty-five cats. 
Lord, master, think of it. What chance would a poor mouse have? None of the rest of us are queer, leastwise we hain't found it out if we are. But then we're mighty uninteresting, I'm bound to admit that. Where did the Gordons live? asked Eric, who had grown used to holding fast to a given point of inquiry through all the bewildering mazes of old Robert's conversation. Away up yonder, half a mile in from Radnor Road, with a thick spruce wood atween them and all the rest of the world. They never go away anywheres, except to church. They never miss that, and nobody goes there. There's just old Thomas and his sister Janet, and a niece of theirs, and this here Neil we've been talking about. They're a queer, dour, cranky lot, and I will say it, mother. There, give your old man a cup of tea, and never mind the way his tongue runs on. Speaking of tea, do you know Mrs. Adam Palmer and Mrs. Jim Martin took tea together at Foster Reed's last Wednesday afternoon? No, why, I thought they were on bad terms, said Mrs. Williamson, betraying a little feminine curiosity. So they are, so they are. But they both happened to visit Mrs. Foster the same afternoon, and neither would leave because that would be knuckling down to the other. So they stuck it out, on opposite sides of the parlour. Mrs. Foster says she never spent such an uncomfortable afternoon in all her life before. She would talk a spell to one and then to other, and they kept talking to Mrs. Foster and at each other. Mrs. Foster says she really thought she'd have to keep them all night, for neither would start to go home before the other. Finally Jim Martin came in to look for his wife, cause he thought she must have got stuck in the marsh, and that solved the problem. Master, you ain't eaten anything. Don't mind my stopping. I was at it half an hour afore you came, and anyway I'm in a hurry. My hired boy went home today. He heard the rooster crow at twelve last night, and he's gone home to see which of his family is dead. He knows one of them is. He heard a rooster crow in the middle of the night once to four, and the next day he got word his second cousin down at Soros was dead. Mother, if the master don't want any more tea— Ain't there some cream for Timothy? End of chapter 4